My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time tonight. Thank you for choosing us to celebrate with on Good Friday. Really special. Um, <clears throat> I'm really going to try to keep it together. Really going to try. I couldn't do it in worship and song. Couldn't do it. And I don't know what is happening in this area of the auditorium. <laughs> With, with Sangwa, who was just sharing, and so powerful. And, uh, <laughs> that extra note of praise and worship was from her husband. <laughs> um, but Good Friday is somewhat of a misnomer. It was really good for humanity, but it was the ultimate worst day for Jesus. Worst day ever. And to try to, to understand the magnitude of the gift is almost unfathomable. You dig through scripture as much as possible to try to find the depth, and it just keeps going deeper. You, 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 you try to figure out the breadth of God's love, the width, the height, and it's just beyond your imagination that somebody would love us like that, me like that, especially when I didn't love him. We have to make a shift regularly to love people who don't love us. We have to make a decision. We have to change our minds because we are so wired to love only people who love us. We don't mind reaching out to a stranger, though it does take some degree of effort. Somebody stranded on the side of the road, we feel this tug on the inside of us, say, go help. Some of us do, some of us don't. But Jesus cried, Jesus began to talk about that when he, when he said, this is what it's like to love your neighbor. And the Good Samaritan helped out somebody who was not like him. Not a friend of his. No relation, no blood. But we have to make a decision to do that. To love people who are unlovable. To love people who have offended us. It takes a decision that goes not just beyond the intellect, but the heart capacity. Because you have to break through pain and agony and betrayal and mistrust. And, and the justification to try to figure out why in the world do I need to even make any effort for this person. Multiply that by the aggregate of all humanity. Not just the individuals, but our combined offense with God. And it's overwhelming that Jesus would even think about doing something like this for us. Much less do it. And then do it in ways that were over the top. Over the, over the top. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The seven last words of Jesus. As he was on the cross, what he said. And generally last words are kind of important. When somebody is passing, they want those things they say last to matter. You don't want to talk about how good the food was at Chick-fil-A. You're not interested in that. They're interested in giving words of encouragement to those who are left behind. Setting in, in order things which might not be in order. 
They're trying to figure out what do I say to help the most at this moment because I've only got a little time left. It's got to be important. So we're going to look at these seven last words of Jesus on the cross. The seven words were phrases dealt with forgiveness, dealt with family, dealt with promise, provision for oneness, a passion for unity, a real purposeful crying and supplication a sense of completion and then a sense of commitment. Now, I don't have one scripture that I'm going to read because the seven last words of Jesus, you can't find all of them in one gospel narrative. So you've got to go from one to another. But I will read passages of scripture for each point. We're going to talk about the idea of forgiveness first. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sorry. I'm not doing good. Forgiveness is Luke 23, 33 through 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they were doing. Lord, help me and us as we study this Bible because my soul is messed up. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Here Jesus is in the greatest pain he's ever experienced. It's not just the nails in the hands or the fact that all who were with him left, betrayed him at some level, or that everything he did for humanity was now ignored. And he had done nothing worthy of the punishment he was experiencing at the time. On a number of levels, he was experiencing unjust treatment. And there's probably not a place in humanity where he could find any goodness save his mother. There were some people who stayed at the cross with him, a few. Some of the women, his mom, and then John. But John ran. There at the night... When Jesus was crying out, trying to figure out, is there any other way I could do this? If, if it's possible, take this cup from me. All the disciples left. Judas was the one who committed the greatest sin, if there is such a thing, in betrayal. But the rest of the disciples just abandoned him. And I'm not quite sure how you judge which is worse when you have a moment where you need somebody. Whether it's betrayal or abandonment, it feels the same. You're not there when I need you. And so he he had his mama, who was always going to be by him. And as he's on the cross, he's in agony not only from the relational tension, from the fact that he was sent to a people who received him not, from the fact that a people who didn't receive him, to whom he wasn't sent, didn't like him anyway, meaning the Romans, And they decided to do something despicable to him, even though they had no reason to, except that the Jews wanted them to. And so they played into the Jews' hands. 
All of the physical stuff that was going on was compounded by the fact that we know in Isaiah, he became that which we should have been. The fullness of judgment that we should have experienced, he took upon himself. Everything we have done wrong needs to hear before judgment comes. The pounding of the gavel upon the bench of eternity where God says guilty and then he meets out punishment. We don't deserve this good life. We don't deserve life at all. And any time you begin to complain about how not good you think it is, think about what it could be. Let gratefulness begin to fill your soul every moment of the day when complaint begins to, to, to make its way out of your pie hole. It could be so much worse. Listen, everybody's got to die. And generally speaking, the principle is this in Scripture. you got to die twice. Twice. Spiritually and physically. At some point. Now the goal is to get you to die spiritually before you die physically. That's the goal. Because if you die physically before you die spiritually, the second death is an eternal one. You don't get out of that one. But if you die spiritually, meaning I choose to identify with the cross of Christ in my life. I give up. I die with him when he died. You do that. Then you get a life that, that doesn't end. And this body physically just passes. But it's like a graduation. It's not an end. So you, you got to die anyway. At some level, thank God you got the grace to die spiritually first. And when you think about your entire life, eh, in the context of like forever, it's a blink. I mean, it may not be good right now. You might have some reason to think it could be better. But remember, in the context of when you get to glory, like that forever period, which is like 10 billion years and keep going. You're going to look at this period and you're going to lament the fact that you thought it was so hard and you complained so much. He let you come to the realization that you needed to come to the end of yourself so that you could begin the beginning of God in your life. He took our punishment. It says in, in 2 Corinthians that he became sin for us. He didn't, just, he didn't just pay for sin. He became it. I don't even know what that means, but he became it for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. And in the midst of that great pain, because it says that he suffered more than any man, physically, relationally and spiritually. The cross had been administered to many people who, some of them, I guess, deserved capital punishment. I don't know. But enough people had died to where you could say that uh, some people had experienced this kind of pain before, but not like Jesus, because on top of the pain that normal people experience for the punishment that they deserve concerning their own deeds in life, Jesus took on the sin of the world. And the pain and the agony, all of that, and he became it. 
In the midst of that, and I painted a picture probably much bigger and more long than I need to because we got to get you out of here in 15 minutes. <laughs> but in the midst of that, he's thinking about somebody else. He's thinking about other people. And he's, he's pretty much come to this moment where he's saying, okay, I got some things I need to do here in ministry while I'm on the cross. I, have, I still have some ministry to fulfill for others. And we have a hard time because we had a bad day on Saturday getting up on Sunday. We have a hard time getting over our little difficulties to try to minister to somebody else's need, we get so inward that nothing outward could ever happen good for somebody else because we're thinking about us. And here he is at his greatest moment of trial, worse than any man has ever experienced in history. And he's thinking, you know, there's a people out there that still need some goodness from me. That's what got me this evening. I said, I don't know how to, oh, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> It'd be enough if we had heard something such as, I forgive you because you've done this to me. We would think he was over the top amazing, raised the bar so high. But he raised it even higher than most of us want it to be raised. We want to be forgiven, but we don't necessarily want to go to the next level. Especially when it involves other people who have done things to us. In fact, solely for that reason, we don't want to go to the next level. It's one of these where we know we have to forgive because that's our Christian duty. And though we don't feel like it, we have to do it. And so we, we buck up when somebody's hurt us. And we pull out all the spiritual might we can from our soul. And we say, okay, I choose to forgive. And we, we emotionally are not engaged at all. But we've made a decision because we know it is a decision. The word forgiveness in the Greek means to, to, to uh, it's a word of thesis. It means as if something is tied to a dock, a boat, you just simply untie it and let it go. No emotion involved. In the Old Testament, the word is NASA, which is kind of where we get our word for, for our space program. It means to take off, to lift from your shoulders. No emotion involved. None. It's just a decision. And we think we've really done something because most of humanity doesn't do that. We think we have complied with the scriptures at a high level, and we are not any longer asking that person to pay for what they did to us. But Jesus took it to a whole nother level. He said, Father, forgive him. When we forgive, we kind of hold this one little area in reserve in the background of our mind. It's one of these, I forgive him, Lord. But if you want to get him, I don't have any problem with that. Vengeance is yours, says the Lord. Now, we may not say it, but we evidence it by our actions. 
in that when we see something happening to somebody that we believe is payback, there come up and finally, tears don't flow. It's kind of one of these, mm-hmm. Yeah, mess with me again. No tears. No tears. Jesus entreated the Father, don't get him. And this set the tone for the rest of his statements and the, the, the balance of his time on the cross. Because I'm not quite sure whether there would have been anybody left to talk to or intercede for by the time Jesus died. If Jesus hadn't said that. Can you imagine how angry the father must have been? He knew his son needed to suffer, but that does not absolve anybody from the guilt of making him do so. Can you imagine how, how mad would you be if somebody was torturing your boy? Daddy, 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 listen to me. Listen to me. Don't get them. Because they're clueless. They're clueless. Wow. Secondly, after forgiveness, there's family. We've got some people at the, the cross. And I'll read this passage of scripture. He said in John 19... Verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Boy, Jesus was a good boy. I mean, mamas, you, you, every mama would love to have Jesus as her son. I mean, he's just, just you're the best boy ever. But there was unfinished business. I can't leave my mom by herself. Again, greatest pain of anybody ever. And he's thinking about his mama. Now there's, there's some justification to say, well, if there's anybody you need to think about, it's her. I get it. But most people's brain turns off when, when they are under great duress. If, if, you, if you look at any psychology annals, you'll see that when people are, are in great difficulty, when stress has overcome their soul, the, the frontal cortex of the brain begins to click in, and your cognitive reflexes, all the thought process just goes away, and you get into the fight and flight mode. You're not thinking about anybody else. You're thinking about survival. How are you going to make it through this? And Jesus has somehow overridden that natural tendency and allowed for him to think about everybody else. And so if anybody ought to think about it, it ought to be your mama. Yeah, but he did. Most wouldn't. And he was not only thinking about his mama, he said, I can't leave her alone. I've got to, I got to fix this. I have to go. But she has to stay. John, that's your mama. From now on. Now, John already had a mama. In fact, she was right there. She was at the cross. The Marys were at the cross. Mary, John, Mary, the mother of James and John, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus. They were all at the cross. And so you, you're sitting there. If you're Mary, mother of James and John, you're thinking, 
Like, he, he got a mama. But he, he wanted to make sure that this woman was cared for. Now, we don't know where jo- Joseph was. We believe he probably passed. Some, I've read some comment, comment, uh, commentaries that talk about he just finally had enough and left. <laughs> just too much for him. This life he never bargained for. He never wanted. He was adopted into this life by the will of God. He was forced to do it somewhat. Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. First of all, a man who had the character he had um, wouldn't do that. Secondly, he went through the most difficult part at the birth of Christ. And then the two years after, when, when Herod tried to, come, came, come, tried to come and kill him, he had to move to, to Egypt, immigrate, spend there two years. But even though that might have been a little bit expensive and inconvenient, just before he left, some guys from the east came and gave him about $2 million worth of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So he kind of benefited from this baby thing. (laughs) Just a little. And so my point is this, even though it was inconvenient, it was most inconvenient then. Jesus was not a problematic two-year-old. He was not the unusual 15-year-old that you had to wonder where he was at 11 o'clock at night. This was a dream child to raise. Why would you leave then? Plus, he was ultimately... The ultimate version of responsibility. He always took out the trash. <laughs> my, my boy, my boy is looking at me right now. He always took out the trash. <laughs> he helped in whatever business, Joseph. Why would you leave then when you had the ultimate greatest version of, of second generation help in the household? So we think he probably passed. But it doesn't say, so we don't know. But because Jesus was leaving, Joseph was gone. He put Mary and John together. And then he not only said, John, here's your mama. He said, mother, here's your son. You are not alone. He'll care for you and you treat him like your own. Significant relationships there are no more significant than those that are born by blood. Come from the same mama, same daddy. But it doesn't mean that the relationships that are formed at the cross are any less significant. And there are some people God has joined me to from the cross I can't leave. They might leave me, but I don't leave them. Brett, there's Jim. Jim, there's Brett. Brett, there's Daryl. Daryl, there's Brett. JC, there's Brett. Brett, there's JC. I can count dozens of people that God has told me, you stay with them. I was joined at the cross. And if you haven't lived your Christian life in such a way as to feel the sense of calling and purpose and benefit that comes from Jesus specifically joining you to people at the cross, you haven't lived right enough, long enough. Listen. This is the basis of spiritual family. Thirdly, we see a promise given. (laughs) Again, he's thinking about other people. I got to keep getting my Bible out and reading it to you. 
Luke 23, verse 40 through 43. On the cross, there were two other people. At the place of the cross, there were two other people being crucified. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. So there was a man who was on one side of, the cross, one side of Jesus' cross who was being crucified, and a man on the other. And one was lashing out with mockings against Christ. The other had some, had some common sense. And the, the other is now speaking against a guy who's speaking poorly. Um, this man has done nothing wrong, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Promise. <laughs> now, this guy... This, this, this guy was fortunately crucified by Jesus. Wow. I, I, I don't know where his ultimate destination would have been had he not died that day with Jesus. But what a weird benefit. <laughs> what a weird benefit. I don't even know. I'm conflicted in my own soul about talking about it because it's just, Wow. And this guy didn't pray the perfect prayer. But the theology behind what he said is so deep. First of all, he realized, I don't know how, maybe he was in Jerusalem sometimes when Jesus came in. He realized, this dude's different. Maybe he heard some sermons, I'm not quite sure, but he heard enough and knew enough to begin to shout down the other guy because the other guy was saying, you claim to be the son of God, get, your, get yourself to, and get us too. And so this guy chimes in and begins to talk. He says, shut up. We deserve this. He doesn't. Respect. Respect. And he doesn't know what else to say. He says, almost, almost realizing his own inadequacy and the sense I don't deserve what I'm about to ask. So it's one of these... Uh, um, like uh, could, when, whenever you get to the place that is so above what any of us know because you are so amazing this is why I'm saying, saying the theology was pretty deep because he knew something about the afterlife to which Jesus was going that I don't know that many people knew I don't know how he got this especially in the pain he was when you get to wherever you're going, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not you, I can't get there. But if you could like, just remember me. Just, just a thought, just a thought, because I'm not worthy of going with you. But if you could just re remember me, I'd appreciate it. He didn't know. He didn't know how to pray. Lord, I give you my life. I have to ask you to forgive me for everything I've done, everything I know to be sin, and I turn my life over to you, and I repent now. He didn't know any of that. But God was able to translate those few little words into all of that. You may not have the perfect prayer, but he hears. And Jesus, 
Jesus answered beyond his prayer. He said, listen to me. Today, I'm taking you with me. <laughs> he was just asking to be remembered. He said, I'm taking you with me. Thinking about others. I, there's only one Jesus. And if you need any proof that this one was the son of God, I could quit on these three statements. Because no human could do this. I got to hurry through. After the promise of eternal life, he gave this, this man. He had a passion for oneness in God. <laughs> Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a statement I, I don't even understand. I... The Godhead at some point, or the person and humanity of Jesus, somehow or another, separated. At least that's what Jesus felt if it didn't really happen. Why have you forsaken me? He wasn't questioning God. He was crying out, I don't like to feel this. I want to be one with you. But when sin takes over, sin can't stay in the presence of God. It can't. It has to be eradicated. It has to be removed. And so this great dichotomy between the unity and the passion that he had to be with the Father, which had, there had never been a time in all of whatever eternity looks like where the two had even had a question like this. There was never a forsaking. There was never a leaving. But Jesus felt it today for the first time. And he did not like it. I beg you, when sin begins to knock at your door, don't just ignore it. Tell it to go. It'll camp out on, on, your, on your stoop. If you let it, it will camp out on your stoop. And if you let it stay there, sooner or later it'll break the door down. You've got to have a passion that, that's much like Christ. I don't want to be separate from you. Ever. And I know the one thing that'll do it. The one thing that'll keep me from you is my sin. So I'm, I'm, I'm separating myself from that so I can stay with you. Have a passion to never be separate from God. Yeah. Ever, 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 in thought, in word, in deed, never be separate from God. Commune with him at deep levels and stay there. Fifth, a purposeful entreaty. He said, I thirst. Now, I don't think, if you look at this at face value, you say, is this one like really important? Why in the world did he need to say this? <laughs> because the next thing he would say would allow him to say what he said next with integrity. First of all, it's a part of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every passage of Scripture regarding the Messiah. 
what the Messiah would do. Every one. Some of them he knew he needed to fulfill and did it. Others, there's no way he could make it happen on his own. It just happened. But there were enough prophetic utterances from the Old Testament to make you go, no one man could ever do all that unless God was with him or he was God. It, it, was, it, it was phenomenal. This one here, he did because he knew it needed to be done. In fact, it says, and that he might fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. He did not want one thing to be undone from his obedience to God. Not one. And he knew he needed to say some more stuff. There were two other things he needed to say. But when you are dying on a cross, you're bleeding nonstop. The heat of the day is causing you to perspire. Stress levels are high. You're perspiring more than you should. And after three or four hours, you're completely dehydrated. You have nothing left. Nothing. You can't talk. Your throat is parched. You can't say anything else. And so, he says, I got some more stuff to say. Please, let me have a little juice here so I can say it. There was a real purpose in having this vinegar being put to his lips that it could at least coat his throat so he could say that which he needed to say. And yet, while he was doing it, he was fulfilling the purpose that the Messiah would have in saying, I thirst. And there's some more stuff there, but I'm going to leave that there for the last two. Because when he had finished saying, I thirst, the next thing he said is, it's finished. Now, yes, he had completed everything that ought to be done in the law, and no man had ever done that before. And everything that Adam missed, he hit. And so there was not one thing he didn't do according to the law. And there was not one thing he shouldn't have done according to the law. He fulfilled it all. And so he could say, it's done. Finally, man, Adam, second Adam, has fulfilled that which God required. And now mankind can inherit the righteousness that I worked out for them. It's finished. No man could ever do it, but I did it. It's done. But the other part of it was this. That last statement I made, I'm done. Not one thing you can find in the Old Testament that talks about what the Messiah ought to do, I haven't done. It's finished. And I'm telling you, you want to have the privilege. Now, none of us, none of us can go to the grave saying we've done everything right. That ship has sailed. <laughs> it's over, baby. <laughs> like when you were two. But there is a point at which you've decided to serve Jesus where every day of your life you're trying to figure out how you can do it best. And so like Paul, you could say, and as he was saying to the church at Philippi, as to the law, meaning my compliance, blameless. Now he wasn't saying he did everything. What he's saying was even when I didn't do right, I gave the appropriate sacrifice to cleanse my soul. Jesus has become the ultimate appropriate sacrifice. Yes, thank you. And our obedience, our compliance with his will on a regular basis, and our continual coming back to the cross anytime we do something wrong allows us to feel a sense 
of redemption and cleansing that, that should culminate whenever we have to say our last, say, it's done. All that Jesus did for me, I've applied. The blood of Christ has covered all my sin, and I have done the best I knew how to do when you asked me to do right. Finished. So that when you get to heaven, having breathed your last, you hear these two words that will set you for all of the rest of forever. Well done. Mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Lastly, committed. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. The, the crucifixion didn't kill him. Crucifixion didn't, he gave up the ghost. He gave, he, he, he said, it's my life, I can lay it down when I want to. The Sabbath had come, meaning he was crucified in the afternoon, came to the evening. They start the day at 6 p.m., and they go to the next day at 6 p.m. So the Sabbath that was about to be done, and you can't leave a cross, can't leave a, a person on the cross in the Jewish territory during the Sabbath. So you, you got to take them down before the Sabbath begins. And, and the soldiers were going to go by and hasten the process of death because nobody dies in six hours on the cross. They intend it to be a long-suffering moment. Some people would stay there for days. It was that bad. Jesus died in like three or four hours. They didn't know it. He just, he just stopped talking. And so the, cross, the, the Sabbath was coming, and they went by, and the way they would do it is they would take a, 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 a rod, Thick, like a baseball bat, and they would break the legs of the prisoners who were on the cross. Why? Because the only way they could get air, because their lungs were collapsing. If you're on the cross, you're not on the cross like this. You're on the cross like this. And so you are hanging from it. There are nails right here about at your wrists, and there are nails in your feet right like this. And they've nailed both feet together. The only way you could get a breath after a couple of hours is to push up on those nails because your lungs would fill with fluid. And they begin to collapse. The only way you get a breath is push up on those nails, painfully. <gasps> if they broke their legs, they couldn't push. And they suffocate within about 15 minutes. They went to break Jesus' legs, but he had already passed. And they were scratching their head. Nobody dies in six hours. Huh? He gave up his spirit. <clears throat> have you ever, have you ever done that with God now his was the ultimate I'm not going to be here anymore but how about a devotional life that is peppered spiced with the idea of Lord I want you to know into your hands I commit my life today how about that if you don't know how to pray start there just start with that one that's a nice thing to say that'll get you feeling right that'll get you being right that'll get you moving in the right direction Lord into your hands I commit my spirit my entire life is yours let that be a dedicatory prayer in your life on a regular basis seven last words oh Christ I made it through and it's a miracle I'm telling you because I'm hungry too I don't know about y'all <laughs> My brain just isn't working as well as it should, and so I had to memorize this thing, and the synapses just aren't firing like they ought to. Let's pray.